Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2% Better Podcast. I am your host, Carrie Bennett, and I look forward to bringing you simple and impactful 2% health upgrades, small daily habits you can do to supercharge your health. We will be focusing on using sunlight, nutrition, sleep, cold, movement, fasting, and more to support your health journey. I hope this podcast inspires you with these science-backed micro-habits so that every day you can become 2% better. The content of this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any illness or medical condition. Nothing is intended to be medical advice or to be used as advice for self-treatment. Please discuss any health-related or treatment-related decisions with your own personal medical authorities. Uh, Continue. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2% Better Health Podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Bennett, and I am so honored today to have with me Dr. Gerald Pollack. So I would love to, before we get into this wonderful topic of exclusion zone water, Dr. Pollack, I'd love to give you a, at least a better introduction than that. So uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Pollack is a Gosh, uh, someone, your research is something I've really looked up to. You're a professor at the University of Washington in bioengineering. Um, you are the founding editor-in-chief, I believe, of the Water Journal, which I absolutely love because it is multidisciplinary. And so it takes a topic and we get to look at it from a d- bunch of different perspectives, which I think is beautiful. Same thing, uh, the founder of the Water Conference. So that's where they also you offer uh it, I, the, the conference, I guess, takes a look at the physics, biology, and chemistry of water. Same thing, and that's been going on for several years, and I really appreciate the fact that you put a lot of those on YouTube so that people like me can uh, can listen to those talks. And then uh, you have written for two very inspiring books. Um, I'm sure more than that, because I know your your bio, your website lists a ton of books, but two that I have read. One of them that you know got me started was Cells, Gels, and the Engine of Life, and then this one right here. If I may reveal my nerd brain, this is a page turner, the fourth phase of water. I could not put this book down. It is a pleasure to chat with you. And I'm very excited to talk about the fourth phase of water and especially ultimately how it applies to health and our own human physiology. So welcome Dr. Pollack, it's a pleasure. Uh, thank you, thank you, Carrie. Thank you so much. It's, um, it's my pleasure to be here with you. And, Wonderful. Uh, happy to discuss my favorite topic. <laughs> It's, it has also become one of my favorite to- topics. So I really, really appreciate that. So, you know, for those who are just, I guess, diving into this concept, I kind of like to, I'd like to share why water might be different when we think of liquid water in a glass compared to the water that's inside of our cells, inside of our body. So that is what you would consider structured water, ordered water, easy water. So please, Dr. Pollack, what is easy water? How does it form? Oh, okay. Well, well, to the first part of your, as you introduced uh, the issue, many, many people think that the water inside our body, inside our cells, and we're taught this um, in, uh, from the textbooks, is just ordinary liquid water. And it, if, that, if that were true, uh, there'd be a problem because if you have to cut yourself, 
the water would come pouring out as it would come pouring out of a faucet and you'd be awfully dehydrated. <laughs> uh, fortunately, that's not the case. And the, the water that's inside our body mainly is the water that you were uh, alluding to, we, we call fourth phase or easy structured uh, water. And that water differs uh, from ordinary water in, in that um, it's more like a crystal. Um, it, it's a liquid crystal. And, um, uh, and that's, that's, what, that's what fills the cells and even, even beyond the cells in, in, inside our body. And, and it has the consistency of, of honey. Um, and, and so it sticks. If you have to cut yourself, uh, it, it doesn't come pouring out because it sticks to the solids that are in, inside of your, of your cell and outside of your cell. So, so, so this, is not, this is not just a, what we're talking about is not just a laboratory curiosity. It, it's, um, it's something that is there in spades. It's all over. Uh, it's not only inside our body, but it, it, it's also outside our body. And I, I, I can explain, Do you, you, the second part of your question, well, what is this water exactly? How does it form? Um, uh, and um, I'm transposing your question into my, my own words. That's I hope that's, that's what you were asking. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay, so I, I guess the, it can form several different ways, but the, the way, the, the most obvious way that it forms is um, if you have a, if you have a material, let's say a, a block of material, and and that material surface is so-called hydrophilic. That means, that means uh, if here here's the surface uh, horizontally, and if you drop water on it, the water will spread out. It means the surface is hydrophilic. It loves water, as opposed to say uh, Teflon, uh, which is hydrophobic and you put water and the water beads up. So if you have a hydrophilic surface immersed in water, what happens is when the water meets that surface, the starting with the first molecular layer, that layer meets the surface and undergoes a radical transformation into a completely different kind of water. And that's what we, we call easy water, isn't it? But it's not just the first molecular layer that you know may be of huge interest to chemists, but not to the rest of us. It's not just one layer. Uh, when the first layer forms, um, uh, the second layer, uh, the, the, the new layer looks very much like the hydrophilic surface. And the next molecular layer does the same thing. And then the next, and the next, and the next. And these layers, sheets or what have you, uh, together, we typically, we, we find hundreds of thousands, if not sometimes even millions that can line up. So, so it's quite a large amount. And, and from the beginning of that, where the hydrophilic surfaces to the last layer, we call that the fourth phase or exclusion zone, easy, easy to remember. Uh, and it's also called exclusion zone because it excludes these, these layers are really tightly packed with one another. And they exhibit the tendency to exclude most every solute that might want to penetrate. Um, and, and, um, and, and that's, that's where it all starts. So you might, you know, if you're thinking and, and curious, which I think most of your listeners are, uh, you might think, well, th this sounds like an 
awfully difficult task of the water to undergo such a uh, transformation. It's got to require energy. And you, you, you can apply uh, 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 more formal theorems to demonstrate that it really does require energy because what you're doing is you're taking something that's random, uh, molecules of water, and, and converting them into something that's very well organized. And in order to do that, you need energy. You can't do it without. Uh, my, my favorite analogy is, is your office or your bedroom. You know, you, you, you put something down, you put your purse down or you put your headphones down or whatever and gradually it becomes messier and messier. It takes essentially no energy to do that. But if you wanna put it back into shape, you, you, you really need to do a bit of work. You need to put in some energy, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, half a day. Uh, and, and so it's the same way to get this water to go from from the uh, disordered state, uh, that is ordinary liquid water, to the ordered state, which is fourth phase, uh, easy water, you gotta put energy in. And the energy uh, comes, <laughs> it, it, this was a real surprise to us, we couldn't figure out the answer because you, know, you obviously can't plug it into the receptacle in the wall, you need <laughs> some source of energy that, that, that that's, there. We couldn't finally, uh, an undergraduate student was doing an experiment in, uh, in the laboratory and he was doing what he was not supposed to do, uh, although secretly I encouraged the students to do that, try out things, uh, because, you know, the younger they are, uh, the higher the level of curiosity. Uh, as they get older, they become jaded, you know, <laughs> and they sometimes uh, become more conservative, if you will. And you know, they, they don't really give a whole lot of thought to, to um, um, alternative or interesting ideas. Uh, and and, and so, so the student was there and uh, he was working with a typical setup that we use to observe the exclusion zone. And he was a lamp sitting right next to him. He took the lamp and shined it on the chamber and, and he quickly called me in and he said, look at this. And where he was shining the light, uh, the size of this exclusion zone or fourth phase grew immensely. And I suggested to him, well, take it away. So he took it away and it went back to where it was. And um, so that was the clue that we needed to uh, figure out that the energy that for all of this is coming from light. Uh, and we did more formal experiments to find out which wavelengths of light were most important. And I, I guess it came as a bit of a surprise. You know, we, we tried a range of wavelengths uh, starting from the shortest wavelength that was convenient for us in the ultraviolet, increasing wavelength to uh, uh, visible uh, and, and, and ultimately toward infrared um, uh, energy over a reasonable band. And the ultraviolet did nothing and the visible light did a little bit. And as we got to the infrared, almost abruptly at, at wavelength of uh, just a little bit beyond red to infrared, but three micrometers wavelength, the effect was enormous. It was practically a thousand times the effect of say um, green light or something like this. So, so the energy uh, is coming from infrared light and you know, a lot of people, a lot of people are not so familiar with with infrared light. They know the term infrared, but they don't know, you know, 
where, where does this come from? And um, so the first thought is, yeah, you look inside the toaster and you can see it. You know, you, you, you push the lever and it's glowing, a beautiful orange and it feels, it feels warm. And, and, um, and you might express that the energy is, is infrared energy that's coming out, which is almost equivalent to heat, but not, not exactly. And so, uh, so we found that was it. And it, it's not though. It's not that it just comes from the toaster or the oven or such. It's actually all over the place, and uh, you can't get rid of it. So, if you were, if you were to to, um, to take an infrared camera, uh, for example, first to darken darken your room so that you can't see anything, and your your smartphone camera can't pick up anything. If you were to be able to, if you had an infrared camera, uh, uh, that is a camera whose sensor is sensitive not to the visible wavelengths, but to the infrared wavelengths, even in complete darkness, you get a beautiful image, uh, which means the energy is there, it, it, it's coming out. Um, and it's used, of course, by the military at night uh, to, to see, see where they can't see otherwise. And so, the evidence, though, if you can get an image with this infrared camera, it mean, means that any, everything is generating uh, uh, or reflecting whatever infrared light. And that infrared light is, is reaching us um, and it's reaching the water. So it means the energy that's required for building this is, is there. And particularly inside our bodies, uh, we have an internal source of infrared because we're metabolizing all the time. As we metabolize, we generate heat and heat is essentially equivalent to infrared. And so we, we, we have the source of energy coming not only from outside, but from, from inside. So there's plenty of energy available to do, uh, to build those layers that I, I was talking about. Uh, just one more thing because sure. I know you have questions, and I don't <laughs> want to just rag on and on. That's okay. That's okay. No, well, you know how it goes. Uh, uh, my favorite topic. I, <laughs> I can talk endlessly. I hear uh, you. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing we found uh, is that, you know, while water is neutral, H two O is neutral. Exclusion zone typically had a negative charge. We could measure that with tiny electrodes. Um, and the reason beyond um, where, where those layers built, just beyond that, has positive charge. So you've got negative charge in the EZ and positive charge beyond negative, positive, separated. You've got a battery. And the battery is charged or recharged using infrared energy. So if you have a battery, um, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that, hey, wait, if you put two electrodes in, one one in the negative, one in the positive, you might be able to get electrical energy out of that. And we demonstrated it, uh, that we could do it. We can uh, light a, um, a light bulb, uh, an LED actually, which requires less energy, but in, in principle, we can make it work. And if we put individual cells of this in series, uh, then we could get a higher voltage. And if we put them in parallel, we can get a higher current. So it worked in an entirely conventional way, but in a, an unconventional source of energy, that is the environment uh, essentially mediated through water. So uh, all of that is, is, has been exciting for us. And, um, uh, and we just 
go on and on and find additional properties, but I think I'd maybe better stop here so oh, you can actually great. ask a question. That's No, no, that's super helpful. I think it's good to get everyone on the same page in terms of what's happening with that exclusion zone water. Um, I, I was guilty, I think, back in undergrad of um, studying molecular biology and biochemistry and really getting into the nitty gritty of, well, you know, this cascade and this pathway. And, you know, I found it fascinating to memorize these, but when I thought about it in a practical sense, it was, it's fascinating to think about, wait a second, how can this energy, how can this occur in real time all at once? This is so many cellular tasks that have to occur all at once. And so it started me to broaden my perspective of, well, what does is, what is everything have in common? And what did we take out? Well, in biochemistry and in anatomy and things, we took out the water. And as soon as you uh, brought it to my attention via your book, that water is everywhere. And mother nature is not stupid, right? Water for energy has worked in other systems previously, plants, bacteria. Uh, and so it only makes sense that we perhaps have retained some of that ability to use generate energy from that exclusion zone water. And I actually, my brain now, I, I believe I've mentioned to you that I, I've read some of Gilbert Ling's stuff. It's challenging, but I've read some of Gilbert Ling's stuff as well. And I am almost of the opinion that exclusion zone water has the potential to be our primary energy source. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I, I've, I've been hesitant to suggest that in, in any public forum, but, but it could be. If you, if you read Gilbert Ling, uh, I, I don't know, he passed you know, a year ago at age uh, close to 100. He just missed 100. But uh, he had a website. I, I don't know if it still exists. It's still exists. up. Yeah, it's still up. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. GilbertLing.org. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in there, he talks about the usual energy source that we learn about in cell biology, and that is ATP. And, uh, and this, is, this is his point, not my point. I'm just re re reiterating from Gilbert Ling. And yes, his books are a real challenge to, <laughs> to, to read, uh, indeed. There's quite a, quite a few of them. And he talks about the original evidence that ATP has a high energy phosphate bond. Uh, this is not his point, he's reviewing. Uh, and, and after that happened, one year later, uh, another group, uh, some prominent chemists uh, said, uh, you know, wait a second, <laughs> you made a mistake in your arithmetic. And, um, and nobody, to, and Gilbert says, nobody has ever addressed that challenge to say, yeah, the challenge is, is really valid or no, 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 the challengers had it wrong. But, uh, you know, we've gone on to presume that that our energy comes essentially exclusively from the high energy bond of ATP. And it might exist, but it might not exist. And, um, you know, if it doesn't exist. Well, it's first of all an embarrassment because it's been in the textbooks for so long. On the other hand, um, you know, the energy has got to come from somewhere. So where does it come from? And I, I, I must admit that um, uh, the idea that this electrical energy, this uh, battery like in, in water is a prominent candidate to, uh, to explain that because your body is full of potential energy. And, you know, many of the processes, yeah, uh, just as probably, there are actually two kinds of uh, choices that one can make in terms of, of energy supply. It's like a sailboat versus a, a powerboat. And if you really want to get from point A to point B, 
the sailboat is not the way to get there because if there's no wind, there's no motion. Uh, and uh, and this, this is kind of like the ATP story because if there's a shortage of ATP for whatever reason, you don't have the energy to do what you need to do. But if the energy is potential energy, if it's there all the time, just waiting to be tapped, you know, you just turn the switch and it's there and boom, you got all that energy that you need. This is a smarter way uh, to, to drive various processes. So, so philosophically, it kind of makes, makes sense to, um, to think about, about potential energy. And, you know, I think we've identified a, poten a so potential, if you will, potential source of potential energy, and that is the electrical energy. Mm -hmm. you, you separate the charge uh, into minus a plus, and that energy, that battery-like energy can be, can be released and, and used, and then you restore the energy uh, again for the next event. So like if your muscle is contract contracting, I have spent two or three decades dealing with, with a molecular mechanism of muscle contraction. And, and the same story exists there. If you were the designer, so to speak, of, of muscle, you'd probably rather than, than use it depend on a source of energy that you have to drag out. Um, it's better for the energy to be there, potential energy waiting to be used because when the frog needs to catch the fly, so that energy has got to be there. Uh, you know, you want to make sure it's there. And then you restore it during, during the time that it's not necessary for you to be using that energy. Uh, unfortunately, people studying uh, muscle contraction, uh, the water, the word water has rarely been invoked. And yet, you know, the muscle, like all the other cells in your body, the muscle cells are roughly two thirds water, uh, less as we begin to get wrinkles on our forehead. But that water, you know, if you if you convert that volume fraction, uh, two thirds into um, number of molecules. That is, if you line up all the molecules in a in a particular cell, muscle cell, or any cell, and start counting, it turns out that more than ninety nine percent of those molecules are water molecules. So, uh, you know, it's hard uh, it's hard to think that ninety nine out of a hundred uh, molecules do really nothing more than serving as, as a bath in which the more important <laughs> molecules bathe. Uh, that's a kind of arrogant statement, Absolutely. I think, to, to dismiss 99% uh, of the molecules as just sort of, you know, being there, they're, they're important for almost nothing. And uh, this is so obviously not the case. And in, in, in you know, the two books that you mentioned, the, the 2001 book, Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life, deal with exactly with that issue. And, you know, I, I attempted to demonstrate that uh, in half dozen different examples of in, in important critical cells in our body, they, they, they follow the, the paradigm that I, I'm just talking about where the, you know, the energy is, is right there and available and it's used to, um, to, to fuel basically a phase transition, a transition in the water and, and the proteins in order to do the job that needs to be done. Right. Okay. Again, no, no, I, that's, no it's great. This is, this is great information. Um, one thing that I, I think is, is fascinating is that we, we do talk a lot about ATP and we talk about mitochondria making ATP. And then it's almost ignored that, and it's called a byproduct of ATP production, water is made, 
right? It's like, it's, it's again, it's given a back seat. <laughs> but I, I am actually, you know, starting to believe that the water made by the mitochondria and then the heat generated from the mitochondria as well to help structure that water, that might be the, the primary mechanism. So I just, another instance where I learned the, all the details of the electron transport chain and water was ignored when it right in front of me, I can clearly see, in my opinion, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but in my opinion, I think that it's a prime candidate for the energy production in the body. Um, so, okay, so uh, I, like any good nerd, I take a bunch of notes on stuff, right? But what something that really, really uh, I loved to hear was, uh, a, I'm gonna kind of paraphrase this from, from the book, but water acts as a machine that transduces an input radiant energy into many kinds of output energy. And I love the fact that you use the word radiant energy and output energy, because that implies that infrared could be a source of that energy, but perhaps I know you have discussed things like earthing and grounding and electron flow, like electron semiconduction. So um, can you just highlight maybe a couple of biological examples of some form of an input radiant energy and then the work that gets done? Yeah, well, radiant energy is just, a, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry I use that term because uh, as, as a scientist, um, you know, we, we think of electromagnetic energy, mm -hmm. which includes light as radiant energy, radiant, mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, maybe because of radiation or, or such. So, so I, I, I'm sorry to lend confusion by using the word radiant energy, but you can just strike it and, and substitute light or electromagnetic energy. Sure. Um, you know, we think of light as being only visible light, but physicists think of light as including the entire electromagnetic spectrum whose wavelengths extend uh, down on the shorter end uh, of, uh, and also the longer end of the narrow band that is visible light. It's all radiant energy, it's all light, it's all electromagnetic energy, they're all synonymous. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the confusion. That, that's, that's at the front end and, and the back end is is work is doing work okay. so you know work work can uh, occur in in various forms uh, if if you've got to move your house uh, um, which i actually needed to do my home my home is now under remediation because the mold content is so incredibly mm. high that wow. uh, they had to do it it's one of the highest that they've re recorded uh, and i i had to move um, and um, uh, unfortunately, I had wrenched my back a month before uh, the time of moving. And my, my students and colleagues were so kind as to come over and do work. So what's work? Well, they, they, they took boxes um, and they, they lifted, uh, uh, well, for example, books. They took books from the bookcase and first they had to vacuum them and then they put the books in and then they lifted the books the box of books and put them in a certain place so lifting a weight that's work uh, doing uh, using electrical energy it's also work it's uh, electrical energy uh, powering uh, something um, and that's another another example of work um, it, work is uh, if you look in in the dictionary, uh, I haven't done so for a long time, but I think work is defined as as the product of uh, of energy consumption. So you you put energy in, 
and that energy does something and it does work uh, of any of various kinds. And I've given a couple of examples. There are probably more, I can't think of them, but probably you can. <laughs> so, is there, so let's talk a little bit about flow. Uh, I discuss flow a ton with my clients in terms of blood flow and lymphatic flow. And I know that the exclusion zone can play a prominent role in flow, uh, you know, repulsive forces and such. So if you wouldn't mind maybe going into that a little bit, I'd love to love to chat. Uh, yeah, well, there's a lot, a lot to say about that. Sure. Um, um, and the, the, let, let me introduce first by flow in trees. Okay, so, so we, all, we all know that, uh, you know, it rains, the water gets soaked into the ground, the roots pick up the moisture, and somehow they got a job to do. And, you know, that job is to take the water from down and, and um, somehow get it to rise up to the leaves, which are often up on top. And the, you know, the extreme example of that is the redwood tree that's 300, 300 feet tall. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you just think about it, about the work that needs to be done, if you'll pardon the expression, work in uh, lifting the water up there, it, it, it's phenomenal. The way you can think about it is um, uh, you, you can take, a, imagine a tube, uh, and and um, uh, and the tube is let's uh, um, let's say sitting down on the ground, and and you pour it, fill the tube. With, let's say it's a ten foot tube, and not three hundred feet, even a ten foot tube. You fill it with water, and you expect the water to want to flow down or up. Well, you know, at the bottom of the tube, uh, actually, the weight of uh, of all of that. And um, it's difficult for that to flow up. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, so you need some kind of mechanism to do it. Now multiply that to get to a 300 foot uh, <laughs> tube. And you can imagine the difficulty that those molecules have of working their way up against that huge pressure uh, sure. that, that is, is pushing down. And of course the botanists have recognized that, that problem and you know, suggested a whole bunch of different hypotheses about how the water uh, gets there, and and the bottom line, the answer is is uh, I, I'm giving you an answer before I've given you or suggested to you the mechanisms. There's got to be some some pump that mm -hmm. that is is pumping it up, and and I think we identified uh, uh, that that pump in in the laboratory. You you wouldn't think of it as an ordinary pump, but but I think it is because. Energy is coming in, and work is getting is is getting done, and it, it's it's hydraulic kind of work involves involves water, mm -hmm. um, and 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 the way we found it, uh, we didn't find it in a tree or the xylem uh, that is the, the those vessels that flow up. We found it in the laboratory with originally with a tube made of a strongly hydrophilic material called naphion. We've repeated the same experiment with many different hydrophilic tubes and the result is similar. So it was nothing specific to do with that, that material. And it was noticed by a student, he uh, put a tube of that material in, in water um, and uh, he noticed something that turned out, I think, to be rather, rather, rather phenomenal. Uh, uh, and, and, and to tell me that, I, I, I can't, the incident is so prominent. I'm sitting in my office 
uh, talking uh, to someone, I don't remember who the person was, or in the middle of some conversation, he was probably a very important person, so to speak, I don't remember. And the student, uh, instead of knocking at the door, which the student, if my door is closed, which is rare, the student will knock, you know, and, uh, and be polite, especially students from Asia, this is a Chinese student, uh, and he comes, uh, he comes without knocking, he, he just pokes his head in and he said, I, I found something really interest, interesting and I, I, I wanted to tell you about it. Interrupting the probably boring <coughs> conversation that I was having with whomever, I don't remember who it was. He said, you know, I put this tube in the water and I was watching it and, and I noticed that, that uh, through the tube, the water kept flowing. Uh, and it won't stop. And he said, "I thought this was interesting." And um, this is a young young student without a whole lot of whole lot of experience. And uh, uh, he thought it was interesting. And I thought, well, if he's if it if it's really correct his observation, and we we checked, of course, to see to confirm that it was real. It was not some kind of experimental artifact. That is amazing because, as we were talking about the requirement of energy to produce work. Uh, this is work to, to drive flow uh, through, through a tube because the water has viscosity uh, and it takes energy to do it, uh, you see. And so I thought, my goodness, if this is really true, not only is it interesting, but it also tends to confirm the idea that the water is always absorbing energy from the environment because where else is the energy coming from to do this? The tube was laying horizontally in, in tube, so there was no pressure difference between the one end and the other end, uh, you see. Uh, so there's no pressure differential to drive the flow as would be the case, say, in our uh, large arteries where the heart is, is driving with, with pressure. So I, so we, this, this was a really a landmark finding because we thought after, <laughs> a bit of, um, uh, of head, head scratching. Why, if this is really true, and we, as I said, we confirmed it, it could have enormous application. And one of the applications uh, is, is indeed the, what I mentioned in the trees, uh, because all you need to do is take this mechanism, turn it 90 degrees, uh, and it could drive the flow uh, uh, in, in the xylem. Uh, from the bottom to the top. And then we thought, well, gee, not, not only the, the xylem, but wherever there's flow, there's water and a hydrophilic surface. Um, the mechanism, I, I won't go the, the exact mechanism, I, I need a little diagram to show, but it involves exclusion zones, charge separation, etc. It's not complicated, but it's just a little hard to do it without without a, a diagram. And it, it's described in that fourth phase book that Very you nicely. Yeah. seem to like. Uh, yeah, uh, so, so, this, so oh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So, please. So this, so this has applications and all throughout the body because uh, if, I would imagine any hydrophilic tube or, or I can't, probably can't say any, but a lot of hydrophilic tubes inside of the body would be able to uh, use this flow, basically have this flow mechanism happen. So that it goes from the blood vessels all the way maybe into the microtubules of the cytoskeleton where nutrients, where there's nutrients flowing in and out or where there's fluid flowing in and out. So there's the potential for this to be broadly applicable throughout the whole entire body. 
Absolutely, and and we've addressed that um, uh, in re recent experiments. Um, you mentioned earlier in the conversation lymph. That's a, a, another place where where the flow is is it's not so clear. It hasn't been so mm -hmm. clear where you know what what's driving the flow. Sure. Also in veins, there is some theory about venous flow and uh, and and how it occurs when there's no obvious pressure differential. Some people uh, have given a lot of thought to the sucking mechanism of mm -hmm. the ventricle. That's a, certainly a possibility. But, but in general, yeah, wherever there's flow, uh, this is a ob an obvious candidate uh, uh, for the flow. And we went on to test it. We, we, we tested it. Um, this is a little story that I, <laughs> I, I, I like to tell. Uh, the, the end result is uh, that uh, we, we've concluded that this is a highly likely possibility in, in, in the bloodstream to drive flow uh, together with the heart. Uh, you know, since William Harvey 400 years ago discovered the circulation, everybody thought that the heart was the sole driver uh, of flow. But, but indeed, we found that this mechanism uh, that we've been talking about um, applies in the vessel themselves. Um, the vessels are actually little motors that, that, that drive the flow. It's not just the heart. And we have manuscript now that we've submitted for uh, publication on, uh, on the subject. And, um, uh, it, I, and I got to tell you the backstory of this because, because it's so simple and, and so interesting. And, and that is, you know, we all think that once the heart stops, the flow stops. Um, but over the, the past century or so, there have been uh, a half dozen uh, publications, uh, scientific publications that demonstrate that even when the heart stops, the flow continues. It, it continue, doesn't continue at the same uh, rate. It, it's much lower, uh, but it continues. And so it, if the heart is not driving it, something else needs to be driving it. And, and we, we found indeed that it's this mechanism. It doesn't necessarily mean that the mechanism is highly subsidiary or secondary to the heart because, because the situations in, in, in which this is looked at, the heart, instead of, instead of turning from being a pump to something neutral, it's actually a blockade. If, if it, it's part of the circuit and if it's not pumping, it's just there blocking. And so, uh, if it's blocking, then you know any kind of flow that might still exist would would be greatly reduced because of this blockage. Nevertheless, it keeps flowing at a lower velocity, and um, and something's got to be driving it. And we think uh, we identified that it's this mechanism that I've just been talking about, the same one that drives the water uh, flow up up the trees, is operating not only in my cardiovascular system, but also in yours, um, mm -hmm. probably, I guess. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm, still, I'm still kicking, so. <laughs> You're still kicking, yeah, uh, okay, so you've got so, uh, <laughs> I got both the, I got both the heart and the, uh, the, the <laughs> IR, the, the uh, easy flow. Um, so what I, what, I, it, what I thought was interesting was, um, you know, if, if nature were to make a pump, right, wouldn't it make sense to put the pump lower in the system? as opposed to, you know, having a, a pump up here. And so, and then also the idea that the uh, capillaries are small. Uh, and so they're, they're oftentimes smaller than the, uh, the, the, red blood, the red blood cells are oftentimes larger, right? Than the actual capillaries themselves. So the, cap, the red blood cells have to either get pumped 
hella hard through the capillaries or almost pulled into the venous system. Um, and so I know that there is also potential, the potential for a charge differential between the arterioles and the venous system that may also drive the red blood cells through the, through the arteries into the, vein, into the veins. Yeah, yeah, it's a, this is a real problem. This is actually how we, we got started. Uh, exactly the problem you mentioned, it was a trip to Moscow. I went to see my friend, colleague, Vladimir Vyakov, who's a professor of biochemistry at Moscow University. And he quickly introduced me to, the, to his, his colleague uh, and the colleague had something to say about exactly what you're talking about, about, about the fact that the red blood cells in healthy young adults like yourself, uh, 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 the, the, the capillaries are as small as three or so, three or four micrometers, pretty narrow, mm -hmm. but, but the blood cells, the red blood cells that need to get through are twice <laughs> the diameter. And so, so in order for them to get through, they have to squeeze in some way. And you can see on videos that it's exactly what happens, uh, that they, have to, they squeeze their way through. And if you think about the energy that's required, uh, again, we're back to energy and work. And so mm -hmm. energy uh, is needed to do the work of, of, of doing this to these cells so they can actually scoot their, their, their way through. And this guy calculated the amount of, of energy and uh, he almost smiled when in Russian, which had to be translated, he was telling me, he said, he said, the energy is so big when you think of all those cells that need to go through that, that if, if the heart were responsible, it, the pressure that the heart would need to develop to push those recalcitrant uh, cells through those narrow vessels, uh, you know, like, like uh, a basketball through through a narrow pipe uh, that it would the pressure would need to be something like a million times the pressure that uh, is, is being generated so you know it's an absurd amount and I I'm quite familiar with with doing calculations of that sort and other sort and it's easy very easy to make a mistake by a factor of 10 or even a hundred even if it's a mistake of a factor of a thousand still <laughs> It's just too big to, to envision. So he concluded that it's, it's gotta be, there's gotta be another source of energy that's helping to, uh, to drive that through. And that, that's what tickled me you know, immediately because, because I'm, I'm thinking, well, gee, uh, you know, we just, in our laboratory, we just found a mechanism where, where um, uh, from infrared energy that's coming in our bodies, not only from outside, but also from inside, from the metabolic energy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's plenty of energy there to do it. If you have the right kind of transducer, that's something that converts the energy in, 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 into work and we identified it. And so, so the bottom line is, is, uh, is, is that it looks as though um, in your cardiovascular system, probably mine too, and, uh, and maybe a few others, sure. <laughs> including everybody, it may be that it's not, it's not just the heart that's doing the work. It may be that the vessels are also doing, mm -hmm. doing the work. And, and we don't know, uh, probably maybe the heart is still the dominant one, but it's not so clear. Uh, that still remains to be established. What, how much is the contribution of those vessels? It makes, it makes sense that nature gave us a couple of different mechanisms too for that blood flow. So, I mean, even the red, I know red blood cells moving will generate their own magnetic field too. And, and does that magnetic field have the potential to 
create a bigger exclusion zone or an appropriately sized exclusion zone inside the vessels themselves. Well, yeah, that's that's a point that um, I never never thought of myself. Uh, thank you for, <laughs> for for that. However, I must say, we're studying magnets now, and uh, mm. what happens what happens uh, to water in, in in the presence of a magnetic field. And the experiment is 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 really simple, uh, and the, the the result is interesting. And you have a magnet. Let's say this is the North Pole here. And you put it in the water, and in the water you put little tiny markers. Uh, 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 we use little spheres, microspheres, and they're all over the place. And what happens is we know from numerous experiments that uh, if an exclusion zone builds, let's say from the surface of, of the magnet, it'll push the microspheres out. That's mm -hmm. why it's called exclusion zone because it excludes all kinds of stuff as it as it grows. So we put the magnet in the water with the microspheres um, and we watch uh, in the microscope to see what happens. And sure enough, the microspheres get excluded for a region of anywhere between a half millimeter and a mil millimeter over, over ten, a few ten, tens of minutes. Just exactly what happens with so many surfaces that we uh, put into the water. So this is uh, That's great. incredibly interesting and mm -hmm. it's relevant to the point that you make. Absolutely. Uh, oh, I love yeah. hearing that. That's really cool research. Um, so then another another thing that I was interested in is I, you know, back to kind of my molecular biology days of enzymes, right? And these biochemical reactions and using an enzyme to speed up the reaction. Um, and I'm, I know in your book, you alluded to the potential for proton flow and proton protonicity potentially to speed up a reaction as a catalysis, like a catalytic reaction. And I'm just wondering if you've had any more insight into potentially exclusions on water acting as it's an, an enzyme, if you will, in various reactions. Well, no more than, than um, uh, I, I've written about as a possibility. I, I know a colleague who is uh, about to launch, uh, an English colleague about to launch studies in, in that uh, direction. But there's, you know, if you think about it, there's something something odd or something wrong. Um, uh, if you look at a cell in, in, in the microscope uh, and, and people have drawn, you know, pictures of what, what goes on. And the first thing that you notice is that it's incredibly crowded that the cell is, is so packed that there actually is not that much water in the cell. Uh, it's two thirds by, by volume. Um, but if you think about a typical gel, for example, uh, gels might have uh, 10 times that fraction of water, even 100 times that fraction of water. So the cell is really crowded with solids. Ain't much room uh, uh, for, for the water in, in, inside the cell. Um, and then then you imagine enzymes are supposed to speed things up. So, so according to the usual theory, it, um, the enzyme and substrate need to be in contact with one another. And it, but it's so crowded in there that you wonder how on earth can anything flow inside mm -hmm. the cell? Uh, the, the, you know, the, the conduits, I, I think of Amsterdam and canals and such. And, um, and those canals, those, those conduits are, are, are so narrow that even even the narrowest of ships can't get through. So so and you want to speed things up. You want the cargo to move rapidly through, but there's no way that that's going to happen. And a lot of people have recognized that 
that there's something fundamentally wrong because to speed up, the two have to get together. In order to get together, you need easy flow, but there's no easy flow because it's, there are obstacles in the way. So there needs to be, something else needs to be uh, playing a role. And you know, it, it might be the protons, which are so small and it can flow through those narrow uh, conduits. Um, or it, it could be something maybe more, more exotic that has to do with, with information that is transmitted mm. in, shall we say, unconventional ways uh, using energy that we don't, we don't really understand. But mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of evidence uh, yeah. for something going on that's beyond, beyond what we, uh, uh, is ordinarily considered in conventional chemistry and physics. So, so lots of possibilities. That's, Sorry. Oh, no, no, it's fascinating. That's fascinating because I believe you're, all, you're alluding to some of the, of uh, Luc Montagnier's research in terms of the DNA and the water having a memory signature of that DNA. And I've, I've also listened to a lot of talks you've given on how water could be a potent quantum computer, if you will, it could have just be, it could have a, the capabilities of a supercomputer in terms of its ability to store memory. And so uh, I, I like that aspect that it makes more sense to me that things are aren't necessarily coordinated as a lock and key mechanism, but instead it's a sharing of energy in potentially what we now consider to be a weird way, but it could very well prove to be that is how human physiology runs. Uh, well, I know you don't have to go there. You don't need to go there. I could go. No, there. no, <laughs> it's not that. I uh, what I what I'm thinking is that you're way ahead of me, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. and that maybe maybe the next book you should write instead of me because oh. Uh, oh. Uh, with your your understanding and your creativity, <laughs> you're amazing. <laughs> I just I, well, thank you. I'm honored. I uh, I I get to uh, I get to think out on a limb a lot, you know. So that's I really do uh, appreciate that. Um, so then let's talk a little bit, oh, would you be, is there any, I also kind of have this brain space for exclusion zone water in tumor cells versus in normal cells. Has it ever been observed that the exclusion zone water in or around a cancerous cell is any different? Uh, I missed the middle of your sentence. Uh, oh. There was a technical, but sure. I think I got it. Uh, yeah. And cancer cells about the water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Indeed. Uh, um, um, so, so, um, uh, how how to how to address this? Um, there there have been experiments that uh, show uh, in the past that the water in cancer cells is less structured uh, than ordinary uh, water, and and it has a lot of implications. I'll mm -hmm. get to that in in a moment if you. Uh, Remind me if sure. I, I'd if love I to. go off on tangent <laughs> and, and, and forget, but but uh, but yeah. So, uh, but I want to I want to address this in in a a way that appeals to me. Sure. Uh, so, uh, it, it's two or three steps. So if you if you just bear with me. Sure. Uh, okay. First first thing is that every cell is has a net negative charge. Uh, if you stick electrodes, you know this, but you're Listeners sure, may, sure. may not. Yeah. You stick electrodes into a cell and you measure a typical cell in my body, uh, maybe between uh, 50 and 100 millivolts negative. Uh, this is typical. Uh, why is that? If you read the textbook, if you read the textbook, uh, you'll, you'll find that it has to do with pumps and channels in the membrane uh, of the cell. And I believe that's not correct. Uh, for various uh, both experimental and logical uh, reasons, which which I don't need to 
I, I, I don't want to go into. It's too much of a of a of a tangent. Um, but just one one point to make is that if you look at it, if you stick the same electrode into a gel instead of into a cell, you get pretty much the same result. Uh, even even sometimes larger negative electrical potentials. But there's no membrane, therefore no pumps, no channels, no, nothing like that. But the same results, and so it becomes a little bit difficult to to attribute that this negative charge inside the cell or inside the gel in, in, in general to some membrane uh, uh, gadgets. Okay, so where does it come from? Well, there's a very simple explanation where the negative charge comes from, and that is the negatively charged easy water that fills the cell. You know, you take a take a, a supermarket bag and, and you fill it with negative charge and, you know, and close it and you've got negative charges. I just stick an electrode in and you'll read a negativity. So, okay. So if a cell is filled with easy water, you'll get a, a negative electrical potential, let's say of minus 60, 70, 80 millivolts. If it has less uh, easy fourth phase water, you'll get a smaller magnitude uh, of that negative potential. And indeed, uh, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, where pe when people were sticking these electrodes into cell rather routinely, uh, I even did some experiments myself in that, but uh, uh, if you did stick it into a cancer cell, instead of minus 60 or minus 70, you get minus 10 or minus 20. Wow. Uh, so, wow, <laughs> you know, what does that mean? Well, for me, what it means is that, that it's got less easy water inside the cell, the more ordinary uh, water. And for some reason, the easy water is not getting built up in, inside the cell. And if the easy water is not getting built up in, inside the cell, um, uh, in, in the case of a, a cancer cell, it, the cell looks like it's activated uh, because during activation, the electrical potential of all, <coughs> excuse me, all such cells will go from minus 60 or minus 70 to somewhere around zero. Uh, that is, the water is undergoing a transition from the structured EZ fourth phase state to ordinary water, and then it, it goes back again. But in the, in the cancer cell, it looks like the cell is perpetually activated. And what do activated cells uh, uh, do? Well, in, in the case of, of uh, cells that undergo mitosis, it turns on the, uh, the, the splitting, it turns on the division of cells. And that's exactly what cancer cells do. They undergo rapid division. So, so the bottom line is, yes, um, in answer to your, your, mm -hmm. your question, uh, it looks as though there's less uh, structure, easy fourth phase water inside the cancer cancer cell. And it may be, it's entirely possible, nobody studied this, that that very fact that there's a, a, a diminution of the ordinary amount of easy water inside inside the cell makes it a cancer cell and makes it keep, keep dividing. So there might be a very tight and close link sure. between what we've been talking about and cancer. It, That's great. We haven't pursued it, but it's fascinating. I mean, my, so I, it also then would make sense why uh, cancer cells are basically glucose hoarders as they're trying to drive energy from a glucose fuel source because they don't have as much exclusion zone water. Well, that could and well then, be. 
potentially the acidic environment also of the of the can cancer cells are generally cancer tumors are tumor cells are generally more acidic correct are you familiar with mina bissell's work at all at uc berkeley with whom mina bissell, uh, mina bissell at uc berkeley she did sorry okay never mind she did exclude uh she looked at the extracellular matrix with mammary cells it was very fascinating so it kind of goes along with this um okay so then let's i i don't i want to be respective of your time i'm so i very much appreciate all of this um lo love chatting with you um i would love to just then i guess talk about what you would consider some important practical takeaways so this is my, my podcast is the two percent better podcast because i find it's not necessarily one gigantic thing but sometimes it's the accumulation of these little two percent health and improvements that when we look back three, five years from now, we're like, oh, wow, that all really made a difference. And so if you had a couple of 2% around exclusion zone water and the buildup of this easy water inside of us as a, a, a potent health promoter, what recommendations would you give or what do you do personally to build that easy water? Uh, okay, when you were uh, talking about, uh, um, I thought you were headed toward technological kinds of oh, sure. innovations. Oh, sure. Awesome. Well, That'd but, be great, too. Well, OK, remind me, because okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. absolutely. <laughs> if, yeah, yeah. But but in terms of health, um, um, so from what we've learned in in the laboratory, I'm, I'm just projecting from, from that, uh, um, if you want to retain your health, what you need to do is to be sure that all your cells are filled with a full complement of easy water, because without Without that easy water, and I, I gave the example of cancer cells, which I think has less easy water than, than normal cells, you wanna make sure that you have a full complement because everything the cell does, it doesn't matter what, what kind of cell, everything, it needs a full uh, uh, cell full of easy water because, because it's the, the, the action of the cell, it, it turns out as described in the, in the Cells gels uh, uh, book. The action of the cell in, involves t it, the the so-called the structured water that's in the cell. If you don't have enough of it, it can't it can't function properly, and so it's either pathological or certain or dysfunctional. And so the idea is to to try to restore uh, the amount, and you could do it any any number of uh, simple ways. The first way. The first way is drinking more water because it's the raw material for building easy water. Your body converts uh, what you drink into easy water. And, or the second way is to, uh, to bypass uh, that conversion process and drink uh, water that contains a lot of e easy water. And, and, and the easy way to do that, so-called easy, I'm sorry to have the two, easy to forget the difference <laughs> between easy and easy. Uh, so um, to do that is to uh, do a so-called juicing where you go out to your backyard and you take the, the uh, uh, freshly grown plants and you basically squeeze them mm. and get rid of the solids, which would, if you were to eat them, they'd rapidly fill you up. You wouldn't want any more. Squirt out the juice or squeeze out the juice and drink the juice. So what, what are you drinking? Well, you're drinking the water from inside the plant cells. And those are fresh, robust plant cells growing in your, in your backyard. And inside the cells, just like inside your healthy cells, uh, it's filled with easy water. And, and so uh, we actually looked at it and confirmed that indeed that 
that's easy water inside those those cells and you're drinking easy water mm -hmm. so if you drink it you're basically the easy water will uh, uh, eventually fill cells that are deficient with easy water it, it may be a bit different from as i'm describing but sure. but essentially it's the same so that's another way um uh another way to um uh, sun's full of infrared energy half of it roughly is infrared that's why it feels warm uh, and and um, expose yourself to the sun uh, and, and this should be building easy in your in your body um, uh, where, where I live in Seattle we don't see so much sun in the winter time when the sun comes out uh, everybody's happy uh, suddenly because there's a, and you know we think this is a purely psychological effect you're you're being relieved from the confinement of darkness uh, to to um, sunshine. <laughs> And it may be a, a, a psychological effect, or uh, and or it might be, it might be that the infrared energy is penetrating even your skull, uh, into your brain, um, and some 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 wavelengths demonstrably do that um, uh, because of technological devices built on that principle. Sure. So it gets into your brain and. Uh, Builds easy water, and mm -hmm. and because it builds easy water, you feel like you should be feeling, which is good, not depressed or what have you. So I love that. So yeah, that, that's another way, and and the extreme of that is to uh, immerse yourself in a, a sauna, or as the Finns would say, a sauna. Um, and I, I don't know, probably you've had the experience. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I've had the experience, and I I tell you that uh, it can be magical. Um, I, I, re, re, <laughs> um, I, I remember in, in a store in Finland, I, uh, I arrived, I gave a talk, and they took us to a party in the evening, and I was jet lagged, tired. All I wanted to do is to go back to the hotel, get into to bed, go to sleep. Um, uh, and at about 10 p.m. at this social uh, uh, dinner, dancing, whatever, uh, so the, the, the organizer stands at the microphone and I thought for sure he's going to say, okay, now where the buses are loading to go back. And he said, okay, the sauna is now open. We got three different ones you can go to. He described, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I decided, okay, I'll go. 20 minutes later, I, I felt as though I'd had eight hours of sleep or more. I was just raring to go. Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't believe the difference, and 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 so why, why is this so effective, and why have so many people emulated that uh, mm -hmm. by getting infrared lights and having their own sauna? And I, there are many many thoughts, and my thought is that it's the infrared energy. It's penetrating your body. It's providing. I mean, the heat is essentially infrared, and it's building easy in your cells, and so it's another way of restoring uh, yourself. Um, Okay, um, another one is the food that you that you eat, or uh, maybe I should say the herbs that you eat. And we, mm. and many 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 of them have been known for many for hundreds thousands of years, millennia, uh, including back to Ayurvedic times uh, in India. Uh, and and you know we were scratching our heads why why are these substances uh, so health promoting? As they are, some of them are 
have been touted as being able to solve health problems that total 20 or 30 different different syndromes and you know my colleagues and I are thinking can 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 let's say turmeric um, can can that really have uh, can can there be 30 turmeric receptors and uh, all over your body or is it is there one effect uh, and that one effect is pervasive all over the body and it didn't take much head scratching before we thought well you know it could be the water because if turmeric happened to build easy water uh, that would do it mm -hmm. you know um, mm -hmm. and we tested it in the laboratory we published and we examined a half dozen or now by now more substances that um, are touted as being good for health um, uh, besides turmeric there's uh, basil holy basil is uh, another one uh, we even studied aspirin which mm. comes from the bark of a, a willow tree uh, we studied ghee uh, you know clarified butter which has been really important in uh, in india and yeah. increasingly outside and all of those build easy uh, at, at concentrations that we would we would have ordinarily in our body they all expanded the exclusion zone a bit more easy it could be that that the impact uh, of these is a very simple explanation builds easy uh, so, okay I, I, uh, oh yeah finally one more uh, about grounding yourself or mm. earthing yourself what does that do uh, well, I think it, um, um, it's, there are a lot of theories on why it's so effective, but it really does seem to be effective. People, if you walk barefoot on the beach, for example, you feel good and uh, you're connecting yourself to the earth. And I remember as a child uh, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, New York, where there's a beach and in the mm -hmm. summertime, everybody heads to the beach. You sure. can't even, you can't even walk from from the street to the water because no places to walk. It's just filled with people. It's crowded. I remember a kid, 10, 11, 12 years old, getting buried by my friends up to here. And um, at the end of the day, they had to, we, we had to go home. They wanted to unbury me. And I, I remember to this day, absolutely not wanting to get unburied oh. because it felt so good. Uh, and I don't know why I remember it because I don't remember so much that happened at, um, at that age, but I remember that feeling because it was so powerful and so strong being buried. Mm -hmm. And now I understand better. My entire body was connected to the earth. And, and here's the key. Uh, the key is that the earth is not neutral. Uh, it's negatively charged. I began my career uh, as an undergraduate studying electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. And no professor ever told me that, that the earth was anything but neutral. You know, you plug that plug in and the third prong, the round one is connected, we thought, to, to zero electrical potential neutrality. Ain't so. And, mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I couldn't believe that I was being so misled by uh, all the professors. They themselves didn't didn't know because in this country we we don't know about this, but but in other countries they do, and so I, I learned this fact from a Russian colleague, um, Andrei Klimov, who was in my laboratory for a while, and he was talking about as he was departing for his flight home, uh, uh, he was telling me about the Earth's electric field, 
electric field? I said, Andre, you must be talking about the magnetic field because I never heard of an electric field. He said, what? You never heard? You don't know that the earth is negative and the, the ionosphere is positive and it's like a capacitor with an electric field that runs. I never heard of such a thing, I said. And Andre said, well, there must be some, something deficient either with you or with your educational system in the, in the US because in Russia, every middle school student knows that the earth is negatively charged. Wow. <laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> I, I had trouble sleeping that night, um, not because of the insult, but because of the potential implication uh, uh, of this, if, if true. And I wasn't so sure uh, because Andre is a creative guy with a lot of creative ideas. And next morning, one of my students brings me the, the lectures of the famous uh, uh, or legendary uh, physicist Richard Feynman, the mm -hmm. Nobel laureate, who many people consider the Einstein of the second half of, of, of the, the previous century, also a funny guy. Uh, and the three volumes, they're, they're so famous that they're read by, I think they're still read by pretty much every physics graduate student in the US. Uh, uh, and volume two, chapter nine, he opens it, the whole chapter deals with the <laughs> negative electric, <laughs> the negative charge of the earth. And so, you know, when you think about that the earth has negative charge, the implications of this are uh, enormous. And um, I, I, I don't want to deviate by talking about it, but my forthcoming book is uh, dealing largely with, with that and with the enormous implications of, of that. Oh, um, that's exciting. Enormous. Uh, and so, soon as I can get my son, who's the artist, to finish the illustrations, he's he's working on remodeling his home. And so he's got some family pressures to finish. So. <laughs> Understandable. Uh, yeah, yeah, you got it. So uh, at any rate, so the earth is negative. And so, um, and let me close the loop. Um, so if you connect yourself electrically uh, with the negative earth, what happens is, is that it's, it's just a infinite supply of electrons. Mm -hmm. And if you have part of your body, some of your cells that have been charged or easy, negatively charged, the two are almost synonymous. Uh, 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 the, the, these negative charges will run into your body and fill, mm -hmm. fill those cells. And, and so if they fill the cells, then your cells are restored to, um, uh, and I, I just should interject that because what I just said may sound a little bit vague, but we found that if you take an electrode and you immerse it in water and pass electrons in, you build easy water. Mm. And so the same thing should be happening inside your cells, inside your body. You connect yourself to a source of negative charge. The electrons come running in quickly sure. Uh, sure. And, and you build easy water uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and there you go. So, so I, I, I tried to, to list a half dozen different expedients, I think most of which are not too complicated. And, and those should, should be uh, beneficial uh, to, to health, uh, theoretically speaking. And, and also there's a lot of practical experience for pretty much all of what I've, what I've said um, uh, that suggests that these, these are you know, uh, mechanisms that could indeed operate in, 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 that, in that way. I love that. So, yeah. I really appreciate that, Dr. Pollock, and I love uh, I love the fact that grounding under natural sunlight is free, right? Grounding in sunlight is free, and so that is 
uh, sounds like a quite a profound way to, I guess, conduct semiconduct electrons and, and then the infrared light from the sun as just like a perfect combination for not only charging us with that exclusion zone, but, you know, filling us with, with filling us with those electrons, uh, creating massive exclusion zones wherever they're needed. And since everything that we've talked about in this podcast, we know that this exclusion zone, we believe relates to health and energy and vitality um, seems to be a pretty profound, but, but simple at the same time. And I love that. Well, thank you. I, I, I like it too. Uh, you know, um, and, um, you'd think that I'd be practicing the uh, same and on occasion now and then I do, but I have to remind, be reminded, for example, to myself to drink enough water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, easy, it's easy to forget <laughs> that, you know, if you've got a busy life, you have no time to pick up the glass and drink the water. Right, right. Everyone's, everyone's, so I, I have one of these grounding mats that I prefer to be outside, but underneath my desk, just in case I need to, you know, conduct electrons. I always try to do that too. Uh, do you take your shoes off? I do my shoes off. Yeah, I'm bare, I'm barefoot almost all the time. So. Okay, you got it. Yeah. Um, do you, do you want to touch on the uh, technological filtration devices or technology at all? Or are you, you happy with how we've given everything? I, I, let me just do that to sure. kind of end because I, uh, I need to be off uh, soon. Uh, uh, I'm actually, I'm, while my house is being remediated, I'm, I'm at a facility, which is actually a retirement facility, about a hundred miles from, uh, from my home and someone oh, wow. offered it for, for free. Um, and so they have fixed times for meals. And if you want to get a meal, you can't be late. Okay. <laughs> so, so, um, <laughs> I, it's, it's not that I think the food is so great, but sometimes your stomach hungers for, Absolutely. for something. Yeah, I just just bear, touch on, because these are, these are really important. And so the first is, I guess, uh, filtration. And um, I, I mentioned that EZ water is exclusion zone. And it was called that because it's, well, first of all, EZ is easy to remember, at least in this country where it's not EZ, but EZ, easy to remember. But but uh, it's called exclusion zone because, because it excludes stuff. It excludes almost everything. And it also excludes uh, uh, the pharmaceuticals mm. that uh, uh, are polluting our, our waters. And, wow. and so if you could collect this EZ, uh, um, basically it would be water that has been freed of all of these, these contaminants. Um, and, and for us, this is an exciting development, um, uh, and we've we've been we've been working on it. There are technological obstacles that we that remain to be solved that have not yet uh, been been solved, but we're uh, in, indeed uh, getting there. And and an offshoot of that, uh, maybe it's more than just an offshoot is the, poss- the possibility of separating salt from the water. Mm. You might think of salt as a contaminant. <laughs> um, uh, and so the idea is that uh, you can have a, a device which does a separation and it, it's not complicated to envision various geometries that, that can do that where, from which you can then ex- extract the uh, easy water. But it turns out the easy water excludes salt. And, and so we've, just barely begun uh, the, the idea of taking ocean water in uh, and, and trying to separate the salt uh, from the water so that you can not only get salt-free water to drink, wow. but that salt-free water should be easy water, which is good for health. So it's a wow. double whammy. And, and since 
getting easy or building easy comes from environmental energy. Uh, it's always there. Um, you don't need to put in extra energy, uh, uh, like for example, from, from um, uh, petroleum, uh, from uh, oil, for, mm -hmm. where it is quite abundant in the Arabic uh, countries and the Middle East. They, they can afford the reverse osmosis, which accomplishes that, but uh, it's very expensive in terms of the energy that you need. Well, here, the energy comes from the sun. It's free. It's free for the taking. So mm -hmm. in theory, we're not there yet, but in theory, it ought to be able to, uh, you ought to be able to separate the salt from the ocean water by virtue of the energy of the sun, which is abundant in those dry areas and get drinking water, which is not abundant in, in, in those areas. So, so for us, this is a, um, you know, ordinary filtration is interesting. Getting salt separated is even more interesting mm. uh, than that. Uh, that's two. And there's a third one, and that is, that was implicit in what we were talking about, is getting electricity uh, from water. I mentioned early on that, um, you know, separating the water into the negatively charged EZ and the positive charge beyond uh, you're separating charge and creating a battery mm -hmm. and you just take two electrodes and connect them and you can get electrical energy out of that so at least in theory in the laboratory it's possible to get electrical energy merely um, from water um, it's water and sunlight it's wow. as natural as you can mm -hmm. as you can get and you can exploit that uh, under the right circumstances, it's totally renewable uh, and and uh, and use it. And so we've we've demonstrated that in the laboratory. But going from a laboratory uh, demonstration uh, to something practical is a real challenge. It's in in, in the trade. It's known as uh, crossing the valley of death uh, because <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you know a lot of. A lot of ideas can't cross that that valley to the uh, uh, the other side, where it's actually something that's viable uh, for practical use. Um, so we 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 have that in mind. So I, I, there are more, but th those are the the three uh, sort of you know ma major um, uh, technological uh, achievements you know, or. Uh, uh, objectives, I should say, not achievements, because we're not there yet. Um, and, you know, we've discovered I'm not a sort of a business oriented. These are mostly intended for humanity, not for, mm -hmm. uh, for, for business, but there have to be some business aspects because in, in order to do the, the technological development, you need money mm -hmm. um, to hire the people to do it. And so, so that, that, that's an obstacle. Uh, so you, you do have a, uh, I, I believe it's a, an organization that, that or I don't, a charity, I, I don't want to misspeak, but I do believe that you uh, have a venture uh, research institute. Yeah, well, I, yeah, so, so I, should, I should clarify. We, we have an institute, it's called the Institute for Venture Science. Mm. And I, I, I tell you just a few words about that, but let me start by saying this is not an institute that's designed to support my own personal laboratory or any kind of developments because uh, you, you know you, I'm the executive director of this organization and, sure. uh, and it's, a, it's a charity basically it's classified as a charity and it would be completely unethical uh, to take money from that and, 
and direct it my way. So, so in fact, I'm, if anything, excluded from, from profiting from that organization. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad you mentioned it because this is an exciting uh, uh, venture, Absolutely. if you will. Um, and, and the idea is, uh, is, is to use this money, uh, uh, private money, um, uh, governments won't support this, money to support uh, scientific endeavors that challenge Uh, uh, those notions have outlived their usefulness. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're a relatively new organization and we've vetted more than 200 pre-proposals down to a dozen proposals from which we've selected five projects or five groups of people in different scientific areas where if the money were available uh, for these people, um, um, and if their hypotheses turned out to be to be valid, uh, it would shake the earth wow. absolutely. And these people have great difficulty getting money otherwise, because as you know, challenging the mainstream um, comes with consequences, and one consequence is to not get funding very very easily. Um, and so we try to provide a vehicle for those people. But just one last little twist, um, you know, if you were if if you were the person applying and uh, and you were suggesting, for example, that uh, the Earth is round, uh, but everybody knows the Earth is flat, and uh, at this time, um, you know, and and you were lucky enough to get money uh, uh, from any organization, you probably wouldn't because you, the people reviewing your application for funding uh, are the ones who would feel threatened by your revolutionary idea. Flat mm -hmm. Earth people, they don't. They don't like to be uh, uh, proven wrong by round earth uh, folks. So, you know, you're not like, but if you do get your money, um, then, um, and and you, you go on to produce some new evidence besides the satellite photos, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, they're gonna stand up and say, oh, Carrie, uh, she's a crackpot. Don't pay any attention to her and then well, what do you do you stand up and wave a flag and say no i i'm no i'm not a crackpot pay attention you know mm -hmm, you're right. you're done mm -hmm. essentially and all over the internet uh, uh oh yeah carrie she's she's just don't pay any attention to her she's nuts and she's a crackpot so this is inevitable it's not uh, a sure. plausible it's inevitable and so our institute recognizes that and if we fund you, our, our objective is to fund up to a dozen other groups around the world who share your vision uh, that, you know, the earth might well be round. And then what happens is, is in, in this case, at next year's at the annual conference of the Shape of the Earth Society, suddenly a dozen groups are reporting, hey, you know, um, using a dozen different methods independently. Brilliant. Uh, mm -hmm. The earth is round, and then the uh, the revolution comes. That's and, brilliant. Well, thank you. I, um, I, I, we're we're you know we're now looking for the private funding um, sure. that we need to support because these endeavors are, are not cheap. And I know there are a lot of people who have done well in their careers and who would like to give back in in a meaningful way, especially now with with so much emphasis on disinformation. It's yeah. almost unbelievable. Uh, and 
you know, it, it this finds its way into the scientific arena. It's so important to deal with with truth, and mm -hmm. and sometimes you know the textbooks teach us something that is simply not true, um, and it's difficult for scientists to challenge uh, these. And we are making it easy for scientists to challenge and to create scientific revolutions, of which there have been so few. If you if you think about it, sure. you know, you may be looking at the internet and reading the New York Times or Washington Post or whatever. And um, it's really hard to, to identify uh, scientific breakthrough uh, revolutions. I, I don't mean technological revolutions, you know, like my laptop computer that I'm mm -hmm. using and Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, they're technological revolutions. Uh, they're amazing, but they're technological, not scientific. Uh, by scientific, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, the, the genetic code that sure. was the sure. mid fifties, the splitting of the atom, nineteen uh, forties. Uh, you know, that's we're we're dealing with almost a century ago, more than a half century ago, and it's really hard. If I were to ask you to to name. Uh, a scientific revolution uh, of equal importance that's occurred during the past, say, 30 years or so, despite huge amounts of monies being put into science, it's really hard to identify ones that have changed everything, changed sure. entire life. We need them. Uh, scientific revolutions scientific inevitably lead to uh, technologies that can help solve the problems of, of, of the world. Is, and and uh, those are desperately needed uh, right now. Uh, and so anybody who's interested, um, uh, the URL is easy to remember. Uh, it's IV, like, you know, intravenous, ivscience.org. Uh, .com will get you there too, I think, but .org, ivscience.org. Take a look. Uh, I will. I'll make sure I link it too. I, I really, really appreciate that. I feel like breakthroughs don't happen in the middle. They happen on the fringe and people need to be feel comfortable getting to the fringe and, uh, and exploring. So absolutely. You hit the nail on the head, Carrie. You're amazing. <laughs> you, you're amazing, Dr. Pollock. I so appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. This has been wonderful. And again, I, I really appreciate you. Okay. It's been my pleasure. All right. Um, okay. Bye -bye. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope this podcast left you today with one thing that you can do to make your health 2% better. My name is Carrie Bennett. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please like it and share it with anyone else you think would benefit from this information. Until next time, have a great day.